This is Visa V, a new podcast series brought to you by the Alliance Program at Columbia University. Visa V features conversations that challenge our understanding of key global, economic, and social issues by casting them in a transatlantic perspective. I'm Emmanuel Catan. I head the Alliance Program, a partnership between Columbia University and three French universities Sciences Po, Paris and Panthéon Sorbonne, and Ecole Polytechnique. Every episode, I sit down face-to-face with, or as we say in French, vis-à-vis, some of the most insightful thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. As our societies in Europe and America struggle with economic inequality, police violence, and social injustice, it is quite clear that we're still dealing with long-term after-effects of colonialism and historic racism. This power imbalance is visible on our streets, where we live and where we work. It is also reflected in the cultures we inhabit and the languages we speak. Of the 7,000 languages spoken in the world today, half are endangered and may disappear by the end of the century. In fact, we're losing one language every two weeks. How do we ensure that languages not only survive, but that no one language rules over the others? How can languages interact on a basis of mutual respect rather than domination and supremacy? For Suleiman Bashir Diagne, professor at Columbia University, the answer lies in translation. In his latest book, De Langue à Langue, L'Hospitalité de la Traduction, From Language to Language, The Hospitality of Translation, Professor Diagne describes translation as an antidote to colonialism and to the asymmetric power relations it creates. Translation forces us to take a step back from our own language in order to welcome the other in our midst and open a pathway to our common humanity. In order to understand the role that translation can play in our societies today, I have the honor to welcome Professor Suleiman Bashir Diagne. Professor Diagne teaches in the departments of philosophy and French at Columbia University. He's also the director of the Institute of African Studies. Professor Diagne received his academic training in France. An alumnus of the École Normale Supérieure, he holds an aggregation in philosophy. And before joining Columbia University in 2008, he taught philosophy for 20 years at Sheikh Anta Diop University in Senegal. His field of research is wide-ranging and includes the history of logic, the French philosophical tradition, including Bergson and Sartre, Islamic philosophy, as well as African philosophy and literature. Suleiman Bashir Diagne, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Emmanuel, and thank you for having me in this podcast. In your latest book, De Longue à Longue, which came out earlier this year, you extol the virtues of translation. You say, and um, I'm sorry, this is my own translation from the French original, the task of the translator of his or her ethics and his or her poetics is to create reciprocity, to create an encounter within our common humanity, end of quote. Why is it important to talk about translation today? What can translation do to mend our divided world? You know, there is a a title, a famous title in philosophy of translation by George Steiner, which is After Babel. The idea being that Translation is the way of overcoming the curse of Babel, this biblical curse when humanity became too arrogant 
uh, God punished them by just dispersing them throughout the earth and then bringing confusion in the language they all shared. And now we are all speaking different languages. We are tribes and nations. As the Quran also says, there is no narrative of Babel in the Quran, but it is still the same concept of humanity dispersed, fragmented into many cultures, many languages, and the responsibility of the human to recreate a sense of humanity. As you mentioned in your introduction, this is a time when we feel our fragmentation. We are in a very dangerous time. I mean, even within nation, you have the feeling that political parties are not really political parties anymore, but really tribes mm. who do not, not only share the same orientation, but do not even share the same reality or the same language. And we will not extol enough the virtue of translation as the way in which different languages meet. A Kenyan a writer Ngugi Wachongo has famously written that the language of languages is translation. We need translation today. We need a language beyond or above our fragmentation into tribes and nations. Right. So this notion of translation, it, it seems to me, is putting us on, on, on a pathway of understanding universality in a different way. Um, the universality that you advocate does not start, it seems to me, with a set of abstract principles that are imposed from the top down. But on the contrary, this, this commonality, this universality that you advocate really should be built from the ground up. And I was wondering, could you explain what you mean by that and, and how does translation um, help us build this kind of horizontal universality? You, you're absolutely uh, right mentioning different forms of universality. Usually when you mention universal, the universal or universality, you would have a reaction uh, of uh, um, people would, would be wary that you are actually imposing an imperial form of universalism because that is what colonialism was. The notion implied by colonialism was that uh, Europe was the location, the natural location of universality. And then it was its mission to bring that universal to the rest of the world. And that is the reason why, in a way, universal or universality has become a, a bad word, which uh, elicits reactions of rejection. Uh, uh, we need, as Immanuel Wallerstein said famously, to invent a truly universal universalism. What would be a truly universal universality? It would be a universality that is not the negation of the plurality of the word, which was the case with the imperial universal, but a universality that, on the contrary, is grounded, is founded upon that plurality. We are plural languages, we are plural cultures, all of them equivalent, placed on the same plane of immanence. Let's get together and have this common horizon of universality forge together this universal as our horizon 
And that is why the image of horizontal universality, not a universal that comes from above, from a culture that would decide that they are beyond and above all uh, uh, cultures, but a universal that would be invented together by the different cultures and different languages in the world. One could see the United Nations, mm -hmm. that this is the philosophical foundation of the idea of a true multilateralism. That's a very inspiring idea, and it seems to me all the more inspiring that it puts universality not as a given, as a starting point, but as a task to achieve, as as a horizon precisely that uh, we as different cultures and different individuals throughout the world should strive to achieve and to create. I want to go back perhaps to the principle of French universalism and see what your position is with regards to how the French model of universalism has been uh, implemented. Um, it contends that not only do, do citizens have equal rights, but also that the state with regards to individual citizens should be colorblind. In other words, that it should not take into account differences relating to race or religion when formulating uh, and implementing public policies. So this, this very strict model of universalism, is it sustainable in your eyes? Is it the case that it is valid in principle, as some would say, but that it failed in its implementation or that it is failing sometimes in its implementation? And should it be amended to reflect the cruel composition of today's society uh, and the specific needs of different groups? I think the, the distinction between the model, the ideal, and the implementation is a good starting point. I mean, the idea of colorblindness or uh, uh, individuals being just citizens in the public sphere and not defined by their appurtenances, that is a very generous idea, an ideal. But now comes the question of implementation. And in order to pose that question uh, accurately, one should remember that this French model is not the unique model of what the universal is. Let's take an example. French laicity, yeah. saying that the religious differences should not count, etc., etc. The way in which it has been formulated owes everything to the history of France. And it is a very particular history. The uh, uh, struggle, the long struggle since 1789 between the church, the Catholic Church and the state is French history. Mm -hmm. You cannot uh, decide that French history is a model for the rest of the world if they have not had the same history. Mm -hmm. uh, Germany is a perfectly secular uh, um, state for me, but it doesn't function in the same way. Germany, for example, thinks that the state has the responsibility to take care of the flourishing of all citizens. And their religious flourishing is part of that. So if you are a Muslim in Germany, for example, a part of your tax, uh, which is taken as a tax connected to your religion, is returned to your mosque. But the point I'm making is that the universal 
finds many different translations. It is not opposed to pluralism. When it comes to implementation, you can see how the best thought model can be appropriated and in a way used again itself. We take the case of France, you know, French universalism. We can see, for example, today how this idea of universalism and laïcité has been weaponized against certain groups, certain minorities. So there is something that is not working. All societies, all human societies now are uh, uh, diverse societies. You don't have homogeneity. So how do you uh, uh, manage to hold firm the principles? At the same time, take into account the plurality and the diversity of your own society. This is a good question, which is posed to all societies today, all nations, and we need to find an answer to those. And I think that uh, this notion of lateral universality is a good concept to put to work to uh, uh, conduct such a reflection. Absolutely. And, and, and what you just said resonates also with what Nelson Mandela used to say about diversity, which is that the great challenge of modern societies is to manage diversity uh, in favor of humanity. One of the things that I was really um, very intrigued about as I read your book is of course, you describe extremely well the power of translation and how translation can be a glue between uh, human beings. But I'm also wondering whether there are limits to translation. Is it possible, for example, to translate every concept? One example that came to mind is uh, the notion of humanity, which in the European tradition is based on individual rights. So each individual is endowed with inalienable rights by virtue of which their humanity must be recognized by others. If I understand well, in the African concept of Ubuntu, humanity lies in the relation, in the connection between two human beings. In other words, I'm human only because you recognize my humanity. My humanity depends not on intrinsic individual qualities, but it depends on my relationship with you. So does that example relating to the notion of humanity show that there are limits to translation? Or would you say that on the contrary, it illustrates the crucial role that translation plays in allowing us to understand each other and, and our different philosophical traditions? Well, in a way, both. There is untranslatable, obviously. Uh, and actually, the untranslatable is not a limitation of translation as such, if we look at it, it is really the foundation of translation itself. You have to recognize first what one of the pioneers of philosophy of translation, uh, the German Schleimacher, called the irrationality of languages. He was not saying that languages are irrational. He was saying that, in fact, there is no common measure between languages. A language is a certain perspective on the word. It is not just a collection of words and a collection of grammatical rules of a syntax, etc. It is also a certain perspective on the word, different from another language. So in a way, 
translation should be impossible. And it is impossible. A translation is an impossible task, but in the end, it is always achieved. Uh, French philosopher Paul Ricoeur said it better than anybody else. He said, C'est une tâche impossible et sublime. It is both an impossible and a sublime task. So it is realized. How is it realized? By some form of empathy. The translator captures by empathy not only what was said, also a whole way of thinking, a whole perspective and sensitivity and so on and so forth. And he captures that and he is going to accomplish, to achieve what is called by Schleimacher still a transplantation. This metaphor of transplantation means that this is a, not a mechanical operation. What she does is taking something alive and making it alive in a new soil. So that is what translation uh, is. And now, understanding and translating Ubuntu. This is a perfect example of what it means to translate, because uh, here is a word that is a word quintessentially Bantu. I mean, all Bantu languages have this word Ubuntu because it is the same root as the very name Bantu, defining all these different peoples who uh, share Bantu languages. Now, how do we understand it? I'm not from that linguistic area myself, but having read much about it, the way in which I understood it is through the central concept of reciprocity. The individual achieves his or her humanity with the support of the community. So this idea of becoming a person, achieving personality, which is synonymous with achieving your humanity through the support of someone else, or namely the community, is a relationship of reciprocity. So when Ubuntu is uh, translated as I am because we are, it is not a good translation because the idea of reciprocity is missing here. Achieving our humanity together is not a way of negating or erasing the individual. On the contrary, the individual is saying, I am going to achieve fully who I have to be and to become through you. And this is something that uh, is very powerful and uh, not only Nelson Mandela, but also Desmond Tutu understood it that way. The challenge they were facing was how to think and realize a post-apartheid South Africa. They reconstructed philosophically this Bantu word of Ubuntu and enshrined it in the South African constitution. And it's interesting uh, the, the way that you're describing um, this process because it seems to me that this concept of Ubuntu has been translated um, perhaps imperfectly into the notion of transitional justice that has then been applied in other contexts beyond South Africa uh, in the years 2000, etc. And uh, it's an example of, of ways in which um, translation can be also a source of inspiration, um, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And and this is uh, uh, really, truly inspiring. I, 
I, I want to go back to the role of the translator because you started talking about the, the qualities that a translator should have. Um, and I, I want to allude to an example that um, you know many of us have encountered um, more or less recently uh, when the Dutch publisher Millenhoff uh, chose a white writer, uh, Marik uh, Lucas uh, Rienveld, to translate Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem, The Hill We Climb. There was a wave of protest uh, that ensued, claiming that uh, a black translator should have been chosen for the job um, because this uh, would have enabled them to connect more closely with the author. Um, should a translator come from the same background or have a, a particular familiarity with the background of the author they're translating? Um, is proficiency in languages enough, in both languages enough? This is a very central question. And actually, I opened my own book with that example of the translation of uh, the, the Hillary Climb and the controversy surrounding that translation. But let me first start with the, the important question you raised of the, the virtue of the translator, the quality of the translator. And this brings me back to uh, Merleau-Ponty. Merleau-Ponty said that the best way to understand what a horizontal or lateral universal is, is to compare it with the way in which we learn other languages, starting with our own uh, uh, mother tongue, our first language. Because that learning other languages is a way of decentering us. When I learn another language, I also learn to look at my own first language from the standpoint of a different language. And translation does that. The quality of the translator is to first understand translation as an experience of decentering. And this is something he or she wants the reader, the new reader in the target language, to experience as well. And this is why in philosophy of translation, the distinction between a translation that foreignize, in other words, uh, uh, you translate from a foreign language but you make sure that in your own translation, someone who is reading you in their own language is feeling the presence of a foreign language, as opposed to translating in such a way that you could pretend that the author wrote directly in the target, in the target language. So this foreignizing translation is the best way of translating something because you create that feeling of decentering in the reader also. If I believe that I can only translate to you if we share totally the same identity, I am misunderstanding translation itself. The operation of translation, which is creating a bridge, measuring first what I have called with Schleiermacher the irrationality of language, this radical separation of languages from one another, and at the same time, the goal of bridging that separation has nothing to do with sharing the same identity as the author in the first place. Mm. If translation is bridging, then there is no need for me to share that same identity with you because I have to understand that translation is decentering and opening, opening to human experience different from my experience. Right. So 
if decentering, I mean, I, I, I really like the way you describe this. Um, if decentering is at the heart of translation, and if a good translator has to go through this experience of decentering, then is that an argument against Google Translate or other similar automated software for translation. Can we imagine a translation software decentering itself? I mean, if it decentered itself, presumably it wouldn't be doing its job. Does that mean, in other words, that for translation, the way in which you understand it to reach its goals, translators have to be uh, made of flesh and blood and cannot be replaced? <laughs> you know, a few years ago, I would have been more assertive in my answer, and I would have said this. Uh, translation rests upon empathy, as I have said, and there is no way these machines are going to uh, uh, know what empathy is. But, and there is a but here, we acknowledge now, you and I working in academia, that when you put uh, a text in French in DeepL Translator or Google Translator, it comes out fairly identical, well, f uh, an acceptable translation, let's say. And I understand, I'm not uh, an expert, obviously, but I understand that instead of trying directly to translate meaning, these machines have learned to accumulate data, already made translations, and they also know how to learn from the corrections that you will be bringing. Mm. So this is the reason why they seem to be capable of imitating better and better what a translation would be. So I still uh, stick to my first declaration and my first response, but I have to add all these nuances coming from the fact that uh, the development of artificial ex uh, uh, intelligence in particular is uh, really uh, um, blurring the lines we would like to draw in a sh much sharper way between what the human does and what the machine does. Yeah. So it's an av you're advocating for, for translation beyond giving access to text, but also giving us access to other cultures and as a means, as a bridge, as you're saying, of engaging with others. Um, it seems that you're also advocating for learning several languages. And, and that will be my last question based on, on what Hannah Arendt said herself that, um, you know, one needs to learn several languages. She said, for only when you master several languages, can you reach the faltering equivocity of the world? Um, and I'm just wondering what you make of this. Uh, is this an argument for translation or against translation? In a way, if you're learning several languages, then you're doing away with the need of translating. Um, or is it uh, that translation too can reveal to us what Arendt calls the, the faltering equivocity of the world? precisely by giving us access to other sources of meaning. The best way of uh, manifesting the importance of translation is that, yes, if you speak many different languages, you do not need translation yourself, but you have become the best possible translator. In other words, knowing those many languages has taught you what decentering means. 
it has taught you a way of approaching the word and having perspectives on the word from very different angles. And this is uh, why Anaren is talking about the faltering of that word. And you are able to share that experience of this faltering word with your reader if you bother being a, a translator. So I would say that Anna Arendt has expressed better than anyone else in that beautiful, beautiful phrase uh, what it means to translate and the ethics and the aesthetics of translation. Professor Jian, thank you so much for a very illuminating um, and thought-provoking conversation. Um, I'd like to remind our listeners that De Longue à Longue, L'Hospitalité de la Traduction, uh, is published by Albin Michel, and that it will be available in English very soon at the other press. Thank you again. Thank you. Vis-a-vis -vis is brought to you by the Alliance Programme, a partnership between Columbia University, Paris Panthéon-Sorbonne, Sciences Po, and École Polytechnique. This podcast is produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and Abdabasid Ali, and I'm Emmanuel Kitan. Special thanks to Michelle Wilson and her colleagues at Columbia Libraries. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about the Alliance Programme and how we support academic exchanges, research, and collaboration between the U.S. and France, please visit us at alliance.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.